I've had the joy of training teams for mission projects for the last 20 years. We do a lot of singing with choreography and spinning in part of some of those songs. And I noticed a few years ago, it wasn't the aspect of throwing anything out of joint. It was that when I finished spinning, my head kept on spinning. And uh, that wasn't the most pleasant experience in the world. So uh, I had to give that up. Thank you for that worship team. We're talking about the Holy Spirit in a series of messages from the book of Acts. When I was a child, they used to use the old English expression for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Any of y'all remember that? The Holy Ghost. Well, I grew up in the era of Scooby-Doo. And on Saturday mornings, I would watch Scooby-Doo and hear about ghosts. And so when I went to church on Sunday morning and they talked about the Holy Ghost, I equivocated the Holy Ghost with the ghost that I was seeing on Scooby-Doo. And I didn't know who the Holy Ghost was, but I knew I didn't want to encounter the Holy Ghost if he was anything like the ghost on Scooby-Doo. Now, I grew up in this old Victorian-style church that was built in the late 1800s. And it had these big vaulted ceilings in it. And there was the sanctuary, and then next door to the sanctuary was the men's Bible class. And the men's Bible class was about the same size as the sanctuary, and it had vaulted ceilings also. And so I was convinced that the Holy Ghost hung out in those vaulted ceilings in that sanctuary, that he was floating around in there. And so as a child, my parents were very active in that church, and we were at the church a lot of times during the week when, uh, or during the day or late after worship service on Sunday when no one was at the building other than us or a few other people. And so I made sure that I avoided the sanctuary in the men's Bible class because I knew when the lights went out and everybody left that the Holy Ghost came out then. And he was going to be floating around in the rafters of that church. And particularly if you were in that church during a thunderstorm when it was really spooky, I knew that the Holy Ghost had to come out. So again, I just made sure that I stayed away from the Holy Ghost. And, you know, the, the whole deal with that was I knew the name but I had no idea as to what his desire was. I just thought his desire was to spook me. And I think a lot of us come up in church sometimes and we hear about the Holy Spirit, but our dilemma is, you're sort of like I was as a kid, we're not really sure what the Holy Spirit is about and what he wants to do in our lives. So we just sort of carefully avoid the Holy Spirit to make sure that he doesn't show up in our lives and do something that we're not prepared for. Years later, as a teenager, I was at uh, the Richmond Coliseum, my hometown of, of Richmond, and they had a citywide gathering called Come Together, cross-denominational groups. And I remember they began to worship the folks. It was about probably 10 to 14,000 people in that Coliseum. And it was a big worship service. And I saw people worshiping God with an energy and an enthusiasm and an engagement with God that I had never seen before. And it scared me at first. And then I thought these people are crazy. And I would never do anything like that. And there were some folks raising their hands and people clapping and, and just getting into it. And I, I was just sort of appalled by that. But later in the service, without me even consciously thinking about it, I found my hands going up. And I began to experience in that service 
the presence of God in a way that I had never experienced His presence before. I began to sense a, an energy inside of me to engage Jesus that I had, had never had before. And in the days following that, I found myself just running to my bedroom and, and getting on my knees and praying and talking to the Lord with a fervency uh, that I had never had before. It wasn't that Jesus hadn't been in my life previously, but I had never experienced Him with the sense of realness and the reality of Him being in my life like I was experiencing in those days. And when I look back on it now, I realize that for the first time in my Christian journey, I was experiencing the reality of the Holy Spirit of God in my life. Creating a, a fervency and a love to engage Jesus and talk to Him and just praise Him and bless Him and thank Him for who He is. And in this series of messages I'm bringing on the Holy Spirit, and I said this to you last Sunday, one of the things that I can't stress enough is I can stand up here and I can give you all kinds of doctrinal truth about the Holy Spirit. And we can walk away Sunday after Sunday knowing more about the Holy Spirit from the Bible, and that's important. But folks, if we're not experiencing the Holy Spirit, we're missing the whole reason God placed Him in our lives in the first place. He has not given us the Holy Spirit just so that we can gain more doctrinal knowledge about Him and say that's good. He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we will live in the fullness of the Spirit, so that our love for Jesus is not just some intellectual experience we have. Our love for Jesus is not just something that we just sort of go through the motions, but there is an empowerment to love Jesus. There is an energy and enthusiasm for serving the Lord, not something that we work up, but what God releases inside of us. So if you will turn with me this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2. Last week we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and we looked in the scripture and we saw that when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, God baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. He tells us that we belong to Him. He places the Spirit of God into our lives. Now Jesus told the disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem and when you get to Jerusalem, I want you to gather in what we know is the upper room and I want you to pray there before me until you receive the gift, the promise that I have for you. So in Acts chapter 2, what Jesus promised takes place. They are in the upper room just inside what we believe was the eastern gate to, to Jerusalem. They're near the temple. There are about 120 believers that are present. They are gathered in Jerusalem during a specific time called the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. It took place 50 days after the Passover. And the purpose of this feast in, in Jewish tradition was to gather together and to celebrate the first harvest that were starting to come in. The weather was pretty good at this time, and so Jewish folks from all over the Roman Empire would be present in Jerusalem. In fact, it was required of all male Jews to be at this festival. So Jerusalem's population probably tripled, if not quadrupled, during this time. The streets were packed with people from all over the Roman Empire. And here they are gathered this day, and the disciples are up in the upper room, and they are praying. Now, the reason we believe that the Lord gave the power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is because God was trying to say that just like you guys have gathered to celebrate the first grain harvest, even so, this is the beginning of the harvest of what we know as the church 
of God gathering and bringing people to himself. Jesus produced the church. It is the Spirit's role to fill the church with the power and love of God and enable the church to realize the mission he has for it. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is this 120 folks. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages and even dialects as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Figri and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. And my sermon outline is on the back of your bulletin, and I invite you, if you would, to follow along. Verse 1, it says that, notice, they were all together in one place when the Spirit of God came upon them. Now, they were together in one place because Jesus had commanded them to be together in one place. But it is more than a geographic statement here. They were together. They were unified they were together in prayer, seeking by Jesus' command the promise of the Father, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons that Satan works so hard to divide churches and to create conflict among us is he knows that as long as the church is in conflict, the church is devoid of the Spirit of God. He knows that as long as we are divided one from, among, from, one from another, that the power of the Spirit of God cannot be manifested among us. And so he works overtime to create division within a church so that he can keep the power of God out of that church. Because he knows, Satan knows that when the church is unified and we together are seeking the Lord, that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out and things begin to happen that cannot be explained apart from the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. All of us have a responsibility before the Lord to work to keep the church unified so that the Spirit of God can be poured out and God's work can be done. They were all together in one place. Now notice verse 2. It says that there was a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. It doesn't say that it was a mighty rushing wind. In other words, they were not sitting in the upper room getting blown from wall to wall. It was the sound of a mighty rushing wind that came. 
Now, it says it came from heaven. We're used to wind blowing east to west and west to east. This wind had the sound that it was coming down from heaven. In other words, God was saying in a very audible way to the folks, I am pouring out my spirit and he's coming down from heaven. Now, the word that's translated there, a rushing wind, is the Greek word from which we get our English word echo. And it is the idea that in their heads, in their ears, in their minds, all around them, this sound was like a mighty echo. It just filled their minds. It filled their ears. It filled the room. God was trying to say to them, I am filling the room with the Spirit because I'm about to fill you with the Holy Spirit. I am filling your mind. I am filling your ears. I am filling your life. I am filling the reality that is around you with the Holy Spirit. It's like an echo all around you. And folks, when the Spirit of God is poured out upon us, it's like that echo just over and over and over again. We are surrounded by the presence and the power of God. He is echoing through our lives. Notice that the Spirit of God fell on all of them. Every outpouring of the Spirit, every filling of the Spirit that takes place in the book of Acts takes place with a group of believers together. Not an individual, but together. You see, it is God's desire to pour out the Spirit, but He wants to pour out the Spirit on us together. Now, in the United States, we are raised and conditioned from day one in what we call rugged individualism. And that is that we sort of like to see ourselves as our own self-made people onto, unto ourselves. In the Orient and in other cultures, they don't understand themselves as separated. They understand themselves as groups, as being together. So we tend to struggle with what he's talking about here because we have such an individual mindset. I hear people sometimes in this country say, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be with the body of Christ in order to experience God in order to worship. You are not going to hear that in other cultures because other cultures don't operate with that kind of individualistic mindset. They operate with a group mindset. And what God is trying to show us here is when he pours out his spirit, he pours out his spirit on the whole body. Now, follow me on this. I can say that I want to separate myself from the body of Christ, and I don't need the body of Christ in order to experience the Holy Spirit, but I don't have the right to tell God how he's going to pour his spirit out. He decides how he's going to pour his spirit out. And he is saying here, I am not about individuals exclusively. I am about the group. I want to empower my whole body, not just individuals within the body. And when we feel like we want empowerment from God so we can go out and do our own thing, that's just being in the flesh and throwing some religious language on top of it. What he is saying here to us by the way he pours out the Spirit is that he is pouring out the Spirit upon the whole body. And if we're going to know what it is for the Holy Spirit of God to come upon us. We can't separate ourselves from the body of Christ. Rather, we unite ourselves to the body of Christ. And in doing that, we are positioning ourselves to receive the fullness of the Spirit. Now, notice verse 4. It says that the Spirit of God separated, this is the visual presence of the Spirit, like a flame on fire and rested or set on each one of them. In that day and age, when a teacher went to teach, the teacher did different than our culture. In our culture, teacher goes to teach. Most of the time, they stand up and teach. 
In that culture, when you went to teach, you sat down. And the sitting down was a way of saying, I am here to teach, and I am here to communicate truth to you. And what does the Spirit of God teach us? If you keep your finger in Acts and turn over to the book of Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans chapter 8, beginning with verses 15 and 16. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Spirit as a teaching ministry, and let's look at one of the aspects of that teaching ministry. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit of God comes into our lives to teach us. And to teach us what? To teach us that we belong to Him, that we are His children. It is the role, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach us, to bear witness inside of us that we belong to Jesus. When we go through periods of time, a lot of times when we say, well, I'm not sure if I know the Lord or not, I'm not sure if I'm saved, etc. A lot of times that's because we're not allowing the Spirit to tell us that we belong to Him. Now notice what He does. It says that He does this, verse 15, by placing the Spirit in us, and the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. Now we don't have an exact equivalent in English for the word Abba, which is an Aramaic term. The closest you might get to it is Dad. It combines two ideas. Number one is the idea of respect. That I respect God. I'm going to listen to Him and I'm going to obey Him because I respect Him. Second is the idea of closeness. Dad, Father God, the sense of being close to him. When I was a college student, we did carpooling on the weekends to get home, to take each other home. And I lived in, my hometown was Richmond, and I remember there were some guys on my dorm floor that were from Richmond, and one of those guys' names was James. And James and I worked out, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year in college, that he was going to go with me, and I was going to drop him off at his house in Chesterfield County. And I remember when we got to his house that night, James goes up and he knocks on the door and the door flies open and there stands his dad. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. His dad was this big strapping man and James wasn't any small guy either. And his dad grabbed his son, threw his arms around his son, pulled his son to his chest and he was just so excited he was almost laughing and he was just, I never seen a man get so excited about his boy before. I mean, he was just holding him and et cetera. And then after a few minutes, and I'm sort of standing there awkwardly while they had this family reunion, the dad looks over the shoulder of his son at me, and he says, uh, please excuse me, and I hope you don't feel uncomfortable, but we're just really close as a family. And I was so blessed to stand there and watching a dad so freely express to his son how much his son meant to him. And also to watch that son be hugged and held and laughed over by his dad. 
That's the idea of Abba Father. That we're grabbing hold of God, but before we can grab hold of Him, Jesus is saying the Spirit is in us, saying Abba Father, because we realize that the Lord God has already thrown His arms around us, pulled us to Himself, holding us to Himself, laughing over us, smiling over us, belonging to Him, and so excited. And so I say Abba Father, not because I'm initiating the relationship and the closeness, but I'm just responding to what God has already initiated in my direction. Now, that is difficult for a lot of us to comprehend. My dad left our home when I was in the sixth grade, and I haven't had a close relationship with him since, and I'm 56. And so it's easy for me to intellectually look at this, but it's difficult for me to emotionally and psychologically connect to what Jesus is saying here. But wrap your mind around that. Visualize him doing that. Abba Father, God, I am responding to you because you love me and you accept me. And see, what the Lord has done in my life and has done repeatedly with this passage is say to me, listen, I want you to experience in me which you didn't experience from your own dad. I want you to have a relationship of closest to me that you didn't have there. And don't think that you can't have it. You can have it with me. God taught me so much about fatherhood when I had my own son and the importance of me taking the initiative to go to him. And one of the things that I tried to do with Jonathan when I was raising him, I started saying to him as a little boy, I love you. And the reason I started saying that to him when he was like just an infant was I knew if I got in the habit of saying that to him as a kid that when he got to be in his 20s like he is now, it would be easy because I would have been saying it to him for 20-some years. And, and now, you know, and, and as Jonathan grew up, he began to say to me, Daddy, I love you. And he was responding back to a love that was already coming my way. And when Jonathan says, Dad, and those of you that are dads, you know what I'm talking about, or granddads. When Jonathan says, Dad, to me, there's just that, that inflection in his voice and the uniqueness of that inflection in his voice that speaks of the relationship that he and I share. And that's what this Abba Father is all about. Someone told me when my son was born, he said, when you walk into a room, you'll be able to distinguish his voice from all the others. And I thought, it's ridiculous. And I walked into a room when Jonathan was a preschooler, and all these little preschoolers running around. And if you ever walk in a room with a bunch of preschoolers, I mean, there's noise on top of noise in there. And I could distinguish his voice and where he was in the room before I even located him in the room. The idea of Abba Father here is that God distinguishes your voice in the crowd. He knows where you are, and he has taken the initiative to come to you. Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit of God is teaching us. Now, notice in verse 3, that visible sign of the fire comes down, it separates, and it goes and it rests on each of them. Two ideas behind fire. Number one, fire is for the purpose of purifying. Cleansing. And eradicating the impurity. God is trying to say to us, when I come to your life, my purpose in your life, in sending the Spirit, second purpose, is to eradicate sin from our lives. 
eradicate the desire for sin, eradicate the act of sin, eradicate the enjoyment of sin, and write this down, eradicate the fantasy of sin. You see, the reason we get messed up in sin is we start fantasizing about it. Ooh, that's going to be fun. I'm going to really enjoy that. That's going to take me to a place of enjoyment I've never had. So we start fantasizing about the sin. And when he comes into our lives, this process of purification is removing the fantasy, exposing the fantasy for what it is. It is just a cheap fantasy that Satan is using to sell us a lie. You see, forgiveness is is just the beginning of purity. I can't say that enough. Forgiveness is just the beginning of purity. Because forgiveness is God saying, I forgive you for what you did. But purity is about, I'm going to remove this from your life. And see, folks, the problem with a lot of us is that we have to ask God to forgive us of the same sin over and over and over again because I don't really want purity. I really want forgiveness and damage control. And forgiveness and damage control is I'm saying, Lord, would you remove the consequences of my sin? God, would you just get rid of it? But I don't really want to be free of this because I really enjoy this. And what God is saying here is when he sends the fullness of the Spirit, he wants to, and it is his desire, to eradicate sin from our lives. To remove it completely. That's the only way we're going to get set free. Now the second aspect of fire after purifying, is refining. Refining. And this is what refining is about. Refining is about God taking us and shaping us and molding us into who He wants us to be. So when I finish, when God begins to send the fire of the Spirit into my life, the refinement of the Spirit, He doesn't just want to cleanse us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to set us free. He wants to eradicate the sin. But the next thing He wants to do in our lives is He wants to shape us and mold us into who He wants us to be. He begins to shape us and mold us into the purpose and the design that he has for our lives. It's, Lord, shape me and mold me for the specific purpose and reason you've got me on planet Earth. Mold me and shape me into what you want to do in my life and, God, how you want to use me in your life to your glory, Lord. Shape me and mold me. Notice how what he did with the disciples in verse 6. It says they begin to speak in other tongues. The word there is languages. They begin to speak in the languages and in the dialects of the people who were present. And they were from all over the Roman Empire, Egypt, North Africa, Asia Minor, Iran, etc. And then notice verse 11. It says that they began to tell the mighty works of God. They began to tell the mighty works of God. When God cleansed them and when God began to shape them and mold them, they began to tell, this is what the Lord has done for me. This is what the Lord is doing in me. And folks, when we experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives, what we begin to talk about is this is what God has done in my life and this is what God is doing in my life. 
When I went to pastor my first church right out of seminary, I was in Manassas, Virginia, at a little neighborhood church called Lock Lomond Baptist Church. We had about a good Sunday for us was 90 people. I mean, we thought we were knocking it out for the kingdom. We had 90 folks present. And it was in a sanctuary about fourth the size of this. And I, I met a man when I first got there. He was on the pastor's search committee. He was a great, big, huge guy. His name was Hugh McCarroll. And Hugh was a retired from both the Marine Corps and the Navy. He'd served in both. And he was a postman at the time. And he was this great big guy. He looked like, you know, he'd be tough as all get out, but he was a great big teddy bear. And Hugh, every so often, would sit down and just talk about what Jesus had done in his life and what Jesus was doing in his life. Because refining is an ongoing process. We don't get completed until we get to heaven. He'll probably work on us some more there. But I remember what he used to say. He'd say, Pastor, Jesus changed my want to. Jesus changed my want to. And then he'd talk about how Jesus had changed what he wanted to be and what he wanted to do to what Jesus wanted him to become and what Jesus wanted him to do. And, and he, if you could imagine this, this big burly man, he was head of children's church. He loved working with the kids. And he was involved in a lot of other ministries in the church, but I always remember that. That was his way of expressing what the fullness of the Holy Spirit meant in his life. Jesus changed my want to. And when the Spirit of God fills us, He changes our want to to what He wants us to be about and wants us to do. I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. I want you and I just to do some business with the Lord. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to present you with some questions and let you and God work this out. Question number one. What sin is it that you and I need to be cleansed from? What sin is it that you and I need cleansing from? Question number two. How is God shaping you? How is God shaping you? And then I want to invite you in silent prayer right now, if you desire, to ask the Lord to fill you with His Holy Spirit. And then I want to leave you with a question for us as a congregation. Because God doesn't just work with individuals. He works with us as the body of Christ. How is God shaping us? How is God refining us? As He fills us, He will refine us. How is He refining us? In just a moment, we will have a time of invitation. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus and chosen to follow Him, I want to invite you and encourage you to walk the aisle here. 
I would love to pray with you. He's saying to Jesus today, Lord, I, I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to become yours. If you need to get reinvigorated re back in fellowship with the Lord, I invite you to come. If you sense that God's calling you to become a part of this church family, to serve the Lord here with us, we invite you to come. God's dealing with you about being in the ministry. We love to pray with you about that. And if always saying you just need to open your heart and life to the Lord and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Whatever that looks like and however you want that to happen, that's your business, God. I just want to be filled with your spirit. Lord, we open our lives to you to do in us what only you can do in the way that you do it. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. You want to create with us, in us, a heart cry for you to match your heart for us. Let's stand together. Worship team, lead us and come if you will.